want to remind you that tonight we have a very special prayer meeting. We'll be, we will be joining with uh, the believers at Traders Point Christian Church, praying for the needs in our city, and particularly for folks in law enforcement. Really hope you can uh, join us tonight for that uh, prayer gathering. It'll be at their church, so it's the second year we're doing this. It's going to be a great night of prayer together. I also wanted to just uh, call you to pray uh, about some things that uh, our elders are uh, wrestling with. They're really good things. They relate to stuff we talked to you about in the first of the year as we get a vision for the city of Indianapolis and what is the role of our church not only in reaching unreached people groups around the world, underserved people in the Brookside area, but unchurched people in the city of Indianapolis. And I want to just remind you of a graphic that we showed you the first of the year. We are targeting uh, really three areas. There's two on here. We've added a third. And that is the northeast area of Indy, the western end of Indianapolis, and also the Greenwood area. And asking the Lord to give us direction and guidance as to what we could do to reach the people who live in those communities and to have you who live in those communities reach those people as well. Uh, as a church, we want to do better at personal evangelism. We want to be able to reach our neighbors, and we realize that if you live more than 20 minutes away to invite a neighbor to come to worship here is very challenging. And so the vision is to be able to put church campuses of College Park in those areas that would eventually, sometime in the future, not only become a congregation, but also become its own church sometime uh, in the future. I want to remind you that the needs of the city of Indianapolis are significant and great. I imagine it took you um, not a whole lot of time to get to church today compared to your normal Monday morning commute. I want to remind you that this is what 465 looks on Sundays, and this is what it looks like on Mondays. Uh, this image is designed to communicate something to you, and that is there are a boatload of people in our community who are not followers of Jesus. Uh, this morning, there are thousands upon thousands of people who are not in uh, a church, and they don't have any relationship with Jesus, and we as a church want to ask ourselves, what do we do to be able to reach them? There's a lot of things that we're good at here at College Park. One of them that we're not great at, that we're improving on, is the matter of personal evangelism. And so we want to mobilize you towards that effort. So I'm calling you today to add this to your prayer list. We've talked about it the first of the year, but our elders are now at a really important point in our discussion. While I was gone, they did a, a bunch of research about locations and area, uh, began talking with people who are interested, particularly in the Northeast area. And I want you to pray, if you will, over the next eight weeks for clarity for us as we look at various locations, as we think about timing and also the people who would join um, this enterprise of uh, launching a campus into the Fishers area. Uh, we have schools that we're looking at. We have particular uh, locations that we're praying about. We also, around the city, have had a number of churches talk with us about how we could help them, partner with them, or in some cases even adopt them. Uh, frankly, church, the needs in our community, as we've studied it, is overwhelming. And so we're excited. At the same time, we need the Lord direct us to direct us in the next uh, number of weeks. So if you'd please pray. Uh, November 23rd, our congregational meeting will be sharing with you the uh, Fishers Campus Plan, how that will then affect the 2000. 15 budget, and the plan is to start a uh, spring uh, Fishers Campus incubator. So if you live in the Fishers area, that northeast quadrant, we'd love to have you participate in that. You could contact Dale Shaw or Dustin Crow. Also, all the information is there that's uh, on online about this uh, movement. So our goal, again, is not just to reach unreached peoples or underserved people, but unchurched people, and we want to mobilize you as a church uh, to be able to do that. So pray with us, will you, over the next number of weeks. Can't wait to get to the November meeting and share with you what the results 
are, but we're at some very critical decision points and just need the Lord to give us wisdom, and you can help us as you pray for us in that. Again, if you have any questions on that, you can see one of our elders, see me. Love to have you informed as to what it is that uh, we're sensing and how the Lord may be leading and directing us. All right, let's pray, and we're going to get to work on Romans 5 today. Father, we need you by your Spirit to take this text and make it leap off of the pages of our Bibles so that we will know how we can apply it and how we can live in it. There are incredible truths here. So give us insight today. Help me to make this passage clear because, Lord, there, there is so much here. And I just want it to be plain. I want it to be helpful. And I want you to be glorified. So to that end, please accomplish that goal. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Take your Bible. Let's go over to Romans 5. Our verses today are verses 6 through 11. We're in the middle of a study on this great and glorious book. Today we're going to be talking about the matter of the love of God. And my guess is that for many of us, if, if you grew up in church, or maybe even if you didn't, you may be familiar with a, a, a children's song, a Sunday school song that's called Jesus Loves Me. The song goes, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. What you may not know is that, that the lines were actually wrote in the 1850s. It was never intended to be a song. It was actually a poem written in a novel by a woman named Anna Warner. And then in 1861, a man named William Bradbury took that poem and turned it into the song that we now sing. In fact, for many years, it was a favorite song among missionaries. The, the song wasn't even called Jesus Loves Me. In many hymnals in the 1800s and early 1900s, it was called China because of its popularity in the Far East. The, the, the song is very simplistic. Granted, there's a number of other hymns that communicate maybe a more fully orbed doctrinal um, assessment of the love of Christ. But the fact of the matter is there's something rich about what it means that Jesus loves me and we know this because the Bible tells us that it's so. Karl Barth, who some would argue was the most influential Protestant theologian of the 20th century, was once asked what was the greatest theological discovery of his lifetime. And he said it was this, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. So today we're going to talk about this love of God and specifically how it connects to what we saw last week in Romans chapter 5, how peace of God, or peace with God rather, gives us hope in hardship. We, we ended last week in verse 5 where Paul introduced to us God's love and how his love had been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And after he ends that pericope, he then moves into this section, extending the discussion about the love of God as it relates to hope and hardship. And what Paul does in this passage is he grounds our understanding of the love of God so that we would not only stand, understand the scope of redemption, but also that we could see how the love of God is really helpful in the midst of hardship. So if hard things come, how do you know that God really loves you? 
And for that matter, how do you know that he's going to keep on loving you? And how do you know that at the end of your life, as you stand before him, that he's going to express his love to you by virtue of the death of his son? And so what Paul does is he plums the depths of what God's love is in order to assure us that if God has loved us like this, then surely he'll love us in hardship. And surely he can give us hope in the midst of difficulty. And surely he will save us. And surely he will keep us. And surely he will cover us with the blood of Christ even on that day, that great day of judgment. That's what he does in this passage. So we're not just talking about the love of God like it's some emotion, which it is. We're talking about the love of God in its richness and its fullness and in its assurance. So there's three elements or three realities of God's love that we're going to look at today. The first is this. There's a love that rescues sinners. Look at verses 6 to 8. It's been a while since you've heard this passage. It was in the middle of our worship order. Let me just read it again to you. For while we were still weak, and at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So the love of God is seen here by virtue of the way in which God loves sinners. And to show that, Paul overlaps two key words. The word weak, verse 6, for while we were weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Those two words are very important. What does the word weak mean? To say that we're weak in the Bible can refer to physical weakness. It can also refer to sickness. But in this context, it means much, much more than that. The word weak is used figuratively to describe a lack of moral strength, to describe inner poverty or inner bankruptcy, or I like this definition best, inner spiritual incapacity that human beings are spiritually incapable of anything. The New American Standard translates this word weak as helpless. The NIV, and I like this, renders it as powerless. So you could say, for while we were still powerless. Powerless to do what? Powerless to save ourselves. So in in the book of Ephesians chapter 2, Paul uses another word. He uses the word dead. He says, when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. So the Bible describes our condition, and you need to understand this, or you won't understand the love of God, you won't understand the miracle of conversion, and frankly, your joy will only be partial. You need to understand the depth from which we were saved so your joy can be complete. And the image in the Bible of who and what we are prior to coming to Christ is this. We are alive spiritually, or alive physically, pardon, but we are dead spiritually. Meaning that we are physically alive, we walk, we think, we move, but the fact of the matter is we are walking dead people. Do we have wills? Yes. Do we have affections? Yes. Do we have desires? Yes. But the Bible tells us that that will, that affection, and those desires are oriented towards the wrong thing every time. That left to ourselves, no one would understand God. No one seeks after Him, Romans chapter 3. There's none righteous, no, not one. The, the, the position of human beings, apart from God, apart from relationship with Christ, is spiritual deadness. Now this is important for you to understand that if you're a follower of Christ, that God's love was set on you through the death of Christ 
before there was any inkling or love or desire for God in your heart. God loved you before you turned to Him. God set His affections upon you before you ever acknowledged His rule. God loved you before you ever repented of your sins. So the gospel message is a search and rescue mission where God goes and seeks after you. I remember the first time as a child that I understood the gospel. I I had heard it. I knew the facts. But it just kind of went in one ear and out the other. I remember I was at a vacation Bible school and some old woman was sitting on a stool and she was sharing the gospel story. And it was like I heard it and suddenly the light bulb in my mind and heart went on. I understood that I was lost. I was understood that I I couldn't please God. And I also understood and I felt deeply within me the reality of eternal punishment. And in that moment, when that light bulb came on, that was me, but it wasn't me. I was seeing, but I was seeing through eyes that God had given me. God sought you before you ever sought Him. The other term in the text is the word ungodly. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. This term is used throughout Greek literature and the New Testament to describe the way in which human beings reject a divine order. Plato used it in Greek philosophy for rejecting spiritual or um, spiritual realities to believe things that were less in terms of their value. Philo, a Jewish philosopher, connected this word to the denial of God's existence. And then in the New Testament, Paul and others use it to describe a life that is oriented away from God, a life that shows shows contempt for God by virtue of our lives, how we live, or what we do. So understand that ungodliness is more than just the sins that we do. Ungodliness is the orientation, the state of mind of what human beings are all about. And that's why in the Bible, ungodliness and unrighteousness or ungodliness and sinfulness are often separated. Let me give you an example. In Romans chapter 1, Paul says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So it's not that those two are the same things. It is that the ungodliness is the orientation and the unrighteousness is the expression of it. Or Paul says this in 1 Timothy 1, Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners. So you need to understand, to understand the love of God, is that the human problem is not just the bad that we do, it's the very orientation of our minds and hearts. It is that we would walk through life assuming that we're okay, that we're not as bad as what we could be, and we're better than others. And what the Bible tells us is that God sets His love on those who would never seek after Him. He sets His love on those whose orientation would be always anti-God. And this is something that happens from birth. This morning as we were getting ready for church, I asked my wife, who teaches our kindergarten class, I said, hey honey, what's your lesson on today? And she said, oh, it's, it's on the fact that all children are sinners. And I said, oh wow, how's that going to go? She said, yeah, well, it's going to be hard. She said, because most kids, when I ask them, are you sinners, they say no, but my brother is. <laughs> what is that? <clears throat> What is that? That's normal humanity, right? 
You have to convince a child he's a sinner. So you ought to be thankful that there's children right now, that your children, if they are in a Sunday school classroom, are hearing people who are pressing God's word into them because children are natural-born sinners, just like all of us. And humanly speaking, they will assume that they're righteous, but their brother or sister is not. So when you get in your car today and you ask your kids, what did you learn in, in Sunday school? If they say, I learned I was a sinner, you ought to go, yes, that's right, you are a big one. Like your mom <laughs> and your dad, right? Because without, listen, without that framework, you don't understand the beauty of God's love. You don't understand that our, our helpless and hopeless and, and powerless condition. Because that's, that's not all of the story, but it's a really important part of the story. Because look what happens now in verse 6. Notice, really verses 6 through 8, how often the word while is used. For while we were still weak, in verse 6. And while we were still sinners, in verse 8. And then, as we'll get to this in a moment, and while we were God's enemies. That's when God's love comes to us. Just think of that. God's love comes to us when we are weak. When we have no spiritual capacity for God in and of ourselves. It comes to us while we are ungodly, when we are set against God and would never seek after Him. And for that matter, His love comes to us not just while we're neutral or while we have said, okay, I repent. God's love comes to us while we are His enemies. You're not waving the white flag of surrender when He comes to you. You are on the wrong side of the battle and God comes and captures you and rescues you. He pursues you and runs after you. What's more, this love comes at just the right time, which means that God had it perfectly timed in history, but He also had it perfectly timed in your life. If you're a follower of Jesus, you know what I'm talking about. That moment when, like when I was a little boy, you, you remember the moment when you understood the gospel Circumstances of your life all lined up. You heard it. You saw it. You believed. That did not happen by accident. God was orchestrating all of those events. He was pursuing you and loving you and calling you to himself. And it may be that you're not a follower of Jesus today and you're here at College Park Church just because you're trying to figure out what life is all about. And you're here not by accident. Why am I in Romans 5, 6 to 11 today? And why are you where you are in your walk with Christ? Why are you where you are right now? You know why? Because God has designed all of that together. And it may be that today he's drawing you and calling you to become a child of him, to put your faith in Jesus. It may be that today is another day where God is rescuing a sinner. And oh, I hope that's you. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And then notice... How unusual this is. Look at verse 7. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. What was Paul saying? He's saying, look, it would make sense, maybe, maybe, to die for a good person, a righteous guy. And then he says, though perhaps for a good person one would even, or dare even to die. That means a benefactor, somebody who loves you, who's been kind to you. So you might die for a person who's good, and you might even dare to die for someone who's been good to you. But who in the world dies for their enemies? Who dies for people who hate him? God does. And that single reality that God dies and rescues sinners in their sin is so transformational, not just eternally, but even personally. It's what makes Christians different than anyone else on the planet. It changes how you see everything. 
it, it, it changes how you see suffering and hardship. How does this idea connect to hope and hardship? It, it connects in this way, that if God has loved us in the death of His Son, if God has rescued us in our sinfulness, then when hard things come and we wonder, how in the world can this be love? We go back to the beauty of what God has done for us in rescuing us out of our sinfulness and remind ourselves, God has rescued me in my sinfulness. Surely this is also part of His good plan for me. It means that the same God who pursued you and called you and sovereignly orchestrated all the events of your life in your conversion is still sovereignly orchestrating all of the events in your life. Do you think God orchestrated all the events that caused you to come to Christ and then just let everything to chance? Let's get Him saved and then hope it all works out? Of course not. Listen, if you really suffer in your lifetime, and all of us will at one point in time. i said this before. If you haven't suffered, you just haven't lived long enough. Happy day, right? So <laughs> the reality is we're all going to suffer. And when you suffer, there is a thing that can run through your mind, and you begin to wonder, how in the world am I going to make it through this? And the older you get, the more you realize, I can't, make the, I can't do this on my own. And what is your hope that you're going to be able to make it? Your hope is not in you. Your hope is that God who called me and saved me and set his love on me is not going to stop loving me for one moment all the way to the end. That's the point of this passage. The effect, then, is that people who have been loved this way ought to be really humble. They ought not glory in themselves because what are we? Who are, who am I and who are you? We're just sinners that used to be rescued. We're sinners that were brought out of the bondage of our own rebellion. It also means that when you blow it, you haven't surprised God. He loves not only to rescue sinners once, but to welcome sinners back to a right relationship with Him. And it also means that you treat other people differently. It means that you treat people with the same kind of grace that you have been treated with. So this love is a love that rescues sinners. Here's the second thing. It is a love that also brings reconciliation. Verse 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. So Paul is talking about how do we know we're going to be saved at the end? How do we know that God is really going to make good on His promise? And His answer is that we have been loved, and we've been loved through reconciliation. And reconciliation, by definition, means a more personal relationship. Justification by faith is a legal standing. Peace with God, legal standing. Access by faith into this grace, legal standing. Reconciliation is different. It's more parental. It's more personal. So he says, therefore, since we have now been justified by his blood, this is the same thing that Paul has said before, justification by faith, justification through redemption, now justification through his blood. It's connecting to the Old Testament model of sacrifice, death, creating nearness to God. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved. That's the first time the word saved is used in the book of Romans. And what are we saved from? We're saved from God's wrath. We talked about this last week. 
But suffice it to say this, that the beauty of redemption is not just that we're saved from our sins. The beauty of our redemption is that we're actually saved from a holy God in our sins. One commentator says this, The ultimate threat confronting sinners is neither sin itself nor the power of Satan, not even death. The ultimate threat confronting sinners is the wrath of God. Listen, friends, there would be nothing more dangerous in all of the universe than to be standing before a holy God in front of whom there's no need for testimony. You don't need an attorney. You don't even need to say anything because God will do the testifying for you. He doesn't need to ask you any questions. He already knows the answers. And everything that you've done that only he and you knows he, you have done, are very clear and very evident. Can you imagine how frightening that will be? Next up, and God just reveals the sinful, unfolds the, the dire humanity of who we really are. I mean, imagine the terror of also knowing that this God who sees you like this has the power to save or to damn. Nothing more dangerous than being in front of the sovereign and omnipotent and holy judge who pours out justice on deserving rebels. There's a part of me that wonders if the experience of the new heaven and new earth will not only include the joy of just unadulterated happiness, but also if the new heavens and new earth will include the joy of knowing what you were saved from. You ever experienced a moment like that? Maybe it was a, a maybe a close call in a car accident, and it just it was so close, and then you're just so happy that it it didn't go south. When we first moved to Indy, um, moved into our new home, and was in the middle of a neighborhood, and we hadn't lived in a neighborhood before, and our daughter Savannah, who was I think about three years old at the time ran out between two cars as another car was coming and gratefully she turned left instead of going straight. If she'd gone straight instead of turning left, it would have been, and I grabbed a hold of her. My heart was beating and I was so happy and at the same time so frightened, but I was so glad that it didn't turn out how it could have turned out. You know what I'm talking about? I wonder if the new heaven and new earth is like that. When you see God in his glory and his majesty and you really understand, like you get it deep within your soul, he is holy, and holy beyond what you could possibly imagine, and then to know that you're not, and that Jesus' blood has covered you, I wonder if in the new heaven and new earth we'll talk about it and say things like, do you know how close we were? Do you know how dangerous that was? Thank God for Christ. And maybe the new heaven and new earth is not only spent just praising his name because we're grateful for salvation, but also because we saw and, and could observe and we knew the wrath of a holy God and the fact that we were spared from that judgment. Paul is highlighting here that the death of Jesus did more than just cleanse us from our sins. The death of Jesus removed the obstacle of God's love our sin, and made a pathway for reconciliation. So how does this relate to hope and hardship? It relates in this way, like what Paul says in Romans chapter 8 and verse 7. Paul says this, not in verse 8 and verse 7, it's 8 and verse 32. He says, He who did not spare his son, how will he not also graciously give us all things? 
In other words, if you have been saved from that kind of wrath, will not God also take care of you in the future? That's his point. The word reconciliation means that God has brought us near. It means to be restored in relationship. It means that we once were God's enemies and now we are his friends. Even more, according to Romans 8, we are heirs, co-heirs with Christ. Look at verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. He's referring not just to Jesus' life in terms of resurrection, but even now that Jesus intercedes for us, he prays for us. That there's a future deliverance that is coming, that our hope for our eternal future does not rest on our ability to stay the course or our ability to clean ourselves up. Our hope in the future rests on God's love. You may have heard the phrase, once saved, always saved. That's a true statement. But sometimes I think we talk about that as though I prayed a prayer, I received Jesus, so I'm saved forever. True at one level, but not complete. It means that if I have received Christ, I have received the love of God. God has set his love on me, that God was the one who worked my salvation, that God was the one who rescued me, that he was the one that saved me. And if God was the one that did it, then no one, not the devil and not me, can undo it. That's the point of eternal security. That my hope in the midst of suffering, how am I going to make it all the way to the end, is this, that if God has set his love on me in the crucifixion of his son, then surely God will keep loving me all the way to the end. You see, suffering can make you question if you'll keep believing. That's the frightening reality when suffering comes. Is, I mean, if you're honest, there's a thought that has to run through your mind at least once, is this, Am I going to keep believing or am I just going to reject, am I going to reject God? And what is your hope? Is your hope yourself? No, I'm not ever going to reject God, really, because I could line up lots of people in life who have not kept the faith all the way to the end. So what is the hope and what is the assurance? It is that if God has loved me and set his affections on me, then God will help me to keep loving him all the way to the end of my life. It also is hopeful in this, that God's love having been set on us reminds us that hard things and bad things are actually used by God to create good and glorious things. And if you need an example of that, look no further than the cross. So the question is, then how do we live and how do we die in light of these truths? In 1563, there was a catechism written. It's called the Heidelberg Catechism. The first question in that catechism is this. What is your only comfort in life and in death? And here's how the Heidelberg Catechism answers that question. What is your comfort in life and death? Read this out loud with me. Here we go. That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life 
and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for Him. So God loves us, and He will continue to love us because He has reconciled us. It means that there's hope in the midst of hardship because God has loved us in our weakness. And so that means if you've come to church today and you're incredibly weak, maybe you just you blew it royally last week, and you come to church feeling just terrible, I want you to know God loves you even in your weakness. Your sin doesn't surprise Him. He saved you from it. There's hope to be restored and renewed. The beautiful thing about reconciliation means that then we can love other people as well in the way in which we have been loved. One of our core values is extravagant grace. It means that we want to treat people in the way that we have been treated. That if we have tasted and seen the extravagant grace of God, then we ought to love people with that same level of extravagant grace. And my question for us today is, do we love people like that? Do you love people like that? Do you go to rescue people even while they are still sinning? Or do people have to clean up before they're worthy of you reaching out to them? That's not how God loved us. What, in what way would a, what motivates a person to be reconciled to somebody else? Well, according to what we find in this text, it means that God has reconciled himself to us, so we ought to be reconciled with one another. This is why the Bible tells us that a believer should not marry an unbeliever. So if you're dating somebody who's an unbeliever, you need to wake up to the reality of this passage because here's what this says. It says that there's no basis to be able to be reconciled unless you have both tasted of the same reconciliation. What motivates a husband and wife in the middle of an argument to say, you know what, let's lay down our weapons and let's be reconciled. If it's not about Christ, it's just about altruistic motives so somebody else could gain an advantage. To be reconciled means that God has brought us together. Tonight we're going to pray with a, a fellow believing church in our community at Traders Point. Why, why are we doing this? Because what's happening in the city should be our, of, our, of concern to us. And it's wonderful to be able to pray with another church. We're not the same in every respect. But it means that there's something beautiful about praying together for what God, we believe, needs to do in the city. Reconciliation is such a Christian term because of the fact that God reconciled us to Himself. I long for the day, and it's getting better, but I long for the day when our church is even more racially diverse than what it presently is. Because I think that there's something beautiful about people from all walks of life who can be able to worship together because their common creed is Christ reconciled me. I mean, how wonderful would it be if somebody said, Hey, what are you? Are you white? Are you black? Are you Hispanic? Are you Asian? What are you? I'm reconciled. That's who I am. That's the power of what the death of Christ can actually do. Here's the third thing. And that this love also creates exaltation. Notice it's not exaltation, it's exaltation. Verse 11. More than that... I think what's happening here is Paul is reaching a crescendo in his argument. And he says, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. After talking about the wonderful reality of justification and peace with God and endurance and suffering and God's love, now 
After talking about reconciliation, Paul reminds us what all of this is really about. And what it is, it is about God. Notice that this text ends with a reference toward reconciliation, but this reconciliation then creates something else. Reconciliation is not the end game. In other words, reconciliation should lead to rejoicing or It's important for you to understand that salvation is not mainly about the salvation of sinners. It is about the salvation of sinners, but it is also about, more importantly, the platform upon which God is then magnified in our lives. Verse 11 says, we rejoice in God. The word translated rejoice in the ESV is translated as boast in the NIV or as exult in the New American Standard. All three of those words fit the the meaning, but I like the word exult in verse 11 for a couple reasons. I like it because it means to rejoice triumphantly in or to rejoice exceedingly. So I don't know that the word rejoice is strong enough in verse 11. I think it's probably strong enough in verse 2 and in verse 3, but it's not, in my opinion, in verse 11. Because what it says is, verse 11 is, we exalt in God. That's the conclusion. The idea is that you've understood the beauty of what you've been rescued from, that you know you're a sinner, and you know that you were weak, and you were ungodly, and you were set against God, and you know that God rescued you from yourself. And then at the end of the day, this creates reconciliation so you're no longer an enemy but you're a co-heir with Christ you're a son and daughter of God that all your sins have been forgiven and you stand absolutely clean before a holy God and as a result who on earth would not exalt in God except those kind of people that's the point it is that the people who have been saved like this the people who have been redeemed like this people who have been rescued like this would exalt in god and it seems to me what paul is doing here he is restoring what was broken and lost in chapters one and two and three in that mankind rejected the glory of god they rejected worshiping and exalting in god and now he brings us all the way through and shows us that god pursues helpless powerless rebellious people by killing his own son so that they could be rescued from their sins so that they could exalt in God. He loves sinners so that these sinners can love him. It means that Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. It means that little ones to him belong. They are weak. I'm weak. But he is strong. To exalt in God means that you're banking everything, including your eternal destiny on that reality. It means that in your sufferings and in your doubts and in your failures and in your sacrificial service of other people, it means that you have come to the conclusion, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And it also means that at the very last moment of your life, when you cross from this life into the next, have you, have you thought about how you, want, how you want to die? I don't mean how physically you would die, but how the, the confession of your faith in your dying breath, what you will say. And I hope that in your... I've been with many people as they have breathed their last. And I'm telling you, God keeps people all the way to the end because He gives them unusual grace to know and feel that Jesus loves me, this I know 
The Bible tells me so. And this love being poured out in weakness, this love poured out in grace, is a love that is so deep and so rich and so strong that it helps rescue sinners such that their love never dies. Not because of them, but because of Him. They live knowing that Jesus loves me. I know this. And they know I'm weak, but He is strong. God shows His love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Let's pray. Father, we need to understand deeply in parts of our soul that can't that, that can't be even understood or reached unless you do it by your spirit. We need to understand there in our lives what this passage means. And I pray today that you would apply it to those who are in moments of suffering and pain, that you would remind them, that you would remind them today that you love them. Lord, for people today who need to make the step from being a non-believer to a believer, that today, that, that all of this is not by accident, that maybe today, Romans 5, 6 through 11, has landed on a heart ready to hear, ready to receive, and ready to believe. And then, Lord, thank you that no matter what comes, my love for you will never die, not because of me, but because of you. And thank you for the hope of that. Because life can be very hard and very painful. And so we cling to you today, believing that if you were the one who did this, then you're going to keep me safe all the way to the end. That you love us, Jesus. And we know it because the Bible tells us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Afterwards, there will be some folks up here who would love to pray for you if there's something going on in your life today. They would love to be able to pour God's grace into your soul. So don't leave. Be prayed for today if there's a need in your life, all right? Hope to see you tonight at 6 o'clock, church. I love you, College Park. God bless you.